0: Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today Dr. Kwanwei Chen, the executive director at the Center for Research in Air and Space Law at McGill University, talks to us about the McGill Manual for Space Law just published this month. The president of the BC College of Family Physicians, Dr. David May, responds to the multi-million-dollar temporary bailout offered by the BC government, and Eva Chippyuk, a lawyer at the Justice. Center for Constitutional Freedoms has all the details on the case against the ArriveCan app filed in federal court this week. So, let's get started. Sterling Fox with you on this Saturday morning. Here's a a, a a line from an article written by our next guest. The release of the first images taken by NASA's James Webb Space Telescope will inspire generations with the infinite possibilities that outer space holds. Clearly, we have a responsibility to ensure that only peaceful, safe, sustainable, lawful, and legitimate uses of space are undertaken for the benefit of humanity and future generations. This is the opening sentence of a piece at the conversation.com entitled outer space is not the wild west. There are clear rules for peace and war. Uh, It is a piece written by our uh, our next guest. Always a pleasure to say good morning and welcome back to the executive director at the Center for Research in Air and Space Law at Montreal's McGill University, Kwanwei Chen on the line. Dr. Chen, Kwanwei, good morning. Welcome back.
1: Good morning, Sterling. Thank you for having me back
0: on the show. Well, it's great to have you back. It's always fun to chat with this, and it's a great article you wrote, and you and I have talked about space law in the past, and now we have something called the McGill Manual on International Law Applicable to Military Uses of Outer Space. Kind of a chewy title there, Quan but uh, it's also brand new. It's only been out for a few weeks, right?
1: That's right, yeah. It's uh, abbreviated as also the uh, McGill Manual. Right, right, right. Something that uh, my colleagues and I have been working on for the last uh, six years or so.
0: Six years to put together this international law. Uh, It contains the 52 rules, uh, according to your piece, adopted by a consensus by a group of experts. These rules clarify international law applicable to all space activities conducted during peacetime and in times of tension that pose challenges to peace and kwan Wei, that's what we're dealing with right now here on terra firma we're dealing with a conflict involving one player that is also a major player in outer space and of course we're talking about russia aren't we mm-hmm.
2: yes that's right
1: um so um the manual. manuel we're not writing the law, right? So the laws already exist, and they have already existed for the last sixty something years, since the beginning of the space age. So we're just clarifying law, you know, as it applies to new applications. Uh, you know, the 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 using using satellites facilitate, for example, drone targeting mm-hmm. or facilitate uh, operations during warfare. So these are the, this is what we find is quite important to clarify as we are increasingly in de- dependent on um, space applications
0: interesting so this is what this is where you're talking about this is where earth and space actually intersect and not necessarily for peaceful purposes if you're if you're a military power Quanwei, uh, and you've got resources on earth that you want to use against an enemy and you use spaced base satellite technology to guide your weaponry at your enemy then you are crossing over into space and you're militarizing space and this is where the mcgill Manual kicks in, correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. And, 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 you know, the militarization of outer space is, is not new. Right? Since the very beginning, we've had reconnaissance satellites, and um, the United States, Soviet Union, and, and China, and different countries around the world using space and realizing that space offers such potential, you know, to watch, watch what your adversaries are doing. Sure. But also, there are um, a number of, uh, as, as we mentioned in the article, a number of civilian uses um, of space that, are, you know, that we don't realize, the communication, this phone communication that we're, we're having right now, it's facilitated through you know, communication satellites. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the importance is underlying that you know, every single country and you know, modern society is, is so dependent on space that we cannot be going out there and shooting you know, down our satellites or destroying or interfering with satellites.
0: So that would be logically, I suppose, the, the next great concern, wouldn't it, Kuan Wei, that uh, it, not only the use of space by powers on Earth to, uh, to uh, uh, in, in opposition to each other for military, specific military purposes, but then the attacking of the uh, enemy's assets in outer yeah. space. That's what you're most concerned about. It certainly that sounds like what, what your, your, your fears are leading to.
1: That's right. Um, so in space, um, there's something called dual use. Right? A lot of space objects, satellites, are of dual use. So they serve both a military and civilian purpose. Mm-hmm. So you know, in peacetime, you know, we rely on space technology as we mentioned for air traffic control. Um, you know, as the backbone for our overall financial system.
0: Mm-hmm. To say then, nothing of the weather,
1: right? Exactly. Exactly. Weather monitoring and remote sensing to improve our you know, agriculture and so on. Um, but you know the danger is that if there are tensions on Earth, you know it may escalate, and an enemy may may see um, your space assets as something that's easy to target, and as a as a very easy way to basically blind you in, in the fog of war. Um, so we don't we do not want that to happen. And what we the McGill manual tries to emphasize is there is no distinction between military and civilian purposes or uses in outer space. Hmm all these uses must be carried out in accordance with international law.
0: So now you talk in the McGill Manual about the 52 uh, precepts that are, are legal precepts that uh, essentially form this this uh, new law of militarization in space and so on. But for a lot of work, Kwanwe, and you and I have talked about this in the past too, for a lot of work, everybody has to buy in. Are you confident that the residents of planet Earth, all of us, are ready to buy in to such uh, a legal framework? Yeah, so...
1: As I mentioned this is not it's not a bunch of people sitting together and writing the law Uh, it's it's a consortium of experts from around the world including Russians including Americans and Europeans and Japanese and Chinese and different other nationalities um, sitting together and you know again underlying that international law has existed from the beginning of the space age right so you know even at the height of the Cold War the Soviet Union and US and different countries sat together and realized we need to have ground rules in space to prevent you know escalations of conflict. Mm-hmm. So so and, and the, our so our purpose in you know, having consulted different people experts around the world and also consulted different governments um, mm-hmm. and you know received their input on 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 such uh, ground rules our purpose is to again clarify that these laws are exist and these still laws are still relevant to today's context
0: indeed and the laws that exist are in many cases uh, united nations treaties or agreements that have been standing now for many decades right
1: yes that's right yeah they, they as i said they've existed since um the cold war 1960s and 70s You know, it was quite miraculous that even at a height of you know superpower rivalry they could sit together and say Okay. International law applies to outer space. Everything we do, you know, the exploration and use of outer space must be conducted with, under international law. Right? So they, they agreed at the time, and today there is no difference. Right? States still continue to say, yes, we agree that international law applies. And so our purpose uh, through the McGill Manual is to remind states, remind governments and space operators that whatever they do, whether it's civilian or, or military activities, Everything
0: must be conducted lawfully. Right. It's, it's, it's governed by law no matter where you are or what the intention might be. So, again, what form of uh, 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 supervision, for lack of a better word, Quan Wei, it, it comes with this package? In other words, if someone is clearly in violation of one of these basic principles, is there now or will there be some kind of agency or... Commission or government uh, that one can bring a complaint forward to, such as a world court kind of thing. Yes, there's, so so there is always recourse to the International Court of Justice right? uh,
1: because that's the enforcer at the international level of international law. Um, but I think um, oftentimes, uh, again between you know different countries, um, the fact that you know you are labeled as a outlaw, right? The fact that you are called out for your irresponsible and illegal behavior that often is enough to um be a deterrent for states to to uh, and, and, and um, dampen their you know outlawish behavior
0: right now this is a, it would seem to be quite a welcome document it's been you've been working on it for six years i would imagine it's being warmly received correct
1: it has been warmly received. so throughout this last six years um we have engaged different governments and we have been also invited to the United Nations to present our findings and prevent the process with the hope that, you know, as we inform the public and inform different governments, we can also have their buy-in and have their acceptance. Right? And, and so through these engagement events, um, a lot of countries have said this is, this is something that we, have, we are looking forward to. Um, which is which is very promising
0: indeed, these internationally agreed laws must inform peaceful exploration and cooperation in space. The fate of future generations depends on this. This is the last line uh, the article is entitled. Our outer space, rather, is not the Wild West. There are clear rules for peace and war. The author of the article, which you can find, by the way, friends, at theconversation.com. The author is our good friend in Montreal, Quanwei Chen, the executive director at the Centre for Research in Air and Space Law at McGill University. Quanwei, thanks very much for, for jumping in with us again this weekend. It's always a real pleasure to have you on board. Yeah, thank you very much, Tony, and uh, good morning and good weekend to everyone. The big news this week in our province, from the health care perspective at least, was the announcement by the B.C. government of $118 million in additional funding for family doctors to cover their overhead costs. The minister, Mr. Dix, saying the province is still working with the doctors of B.C. on changing that fee-for-service agreement, which family doctors insist remains uh, outdated. With us... Uh, This morning to talk more about the attempt of the shortage solution is Dr. David May, the president of the B.C. College of Family Physicians. Dr. May, good morning and welcome back, sir.
2: Good morning to you again, Sterling, and thank you again for caring so much about the health of British Columbia. Well,
0: it's my pleasure, and it's, a, it's, it's good of you to, to uh, get up early on a Saturday to join us as well, David. We appreciate it because this is important stuff. $118 million sounds like a lot of dough, but it boils down to about 25,000 max per physician. Is that my understanding of that? A reading of it, correct?
2: Well, I agree with you. It does sound like a lot. Of, so it sounds like a lot of money to me. Um, Twenty-five would be the the upper limit of it. Uh, some people say fifteen, but uh, but still, there's a, there's a, there is a few thousand per doc. Um, the important point is, that, however, that this is equivalent of putting a dressing on an open, gaping wound, mm-hmm. and this is going to be a temporary fix for family medicine. In other words, it might prevent some mortgage foreclosures. It might allow some docks to catch back up on their rent and it might prevent some of the older docks from uh leaving, the burnt out older docks from leaving the profession. Um for and it, it runs out in about December. So uh it's a temporary fix. And what we need is something a lot more fundamental than this.
0: Dr. May, can we talk very briefly, sir, about this burnout quotient that you've just mentioned? Because we're hearing more and more about it. We're hearing, for example, again, up in Clearwater this weekend, the ER is closed yet again. We're seeing more and more evidence of this, not just here in B.C., but across the country. Uh, physician and health care professional burnout is r- dramatically affecting our system's ability to care for us.
2: I agree. And um, I don't know if you've seen the data released by the Canadian Medical Association, which
0: was both startling. Oh, and we lost Dr. May. Phil, do you want to double check that connection for us, please? I think we just uh, had Dr. May drop off. We'll just uh, double check that if you would, please. And again, we're talking about the announcement by Adrian Dix. Uh, Again, funding of, uh, Dr. May said, up to $25,000 per doctor. Uh, It's response to family physicians saying uh, there, as Dr. May was saying, uh, they're closing their practices because of the long hours and especially the rising overhead. Uh, Family doctors do okay in terms of what they make uh, per year on paper. However, when you subtract the cost of being in business, a family doctor is also a small business person. He or she has an office and staff, and as Doctor May mentioned, rent and other realities that any business operator has to deal with, on top of being a doctor. So the the the, the problem has long been the ability of doctors to to pay their bills. Doctor May is back with us. Uh, we were just talking, <laughs> uh, and thanks for that. We're just just talking though, basically about the the burden. Of being a small business operator on top of a healthcare professional, it's it's a it, it's a a double whammy for many doctor May that doesn't work out too well in some cases.
2: Yes, especially for our young new docs who are coming into practice, they really um, are not that interested in running a business. They're not that's not what they're trained in. They don't most of them don't have uh, a BA, although some of them do, uh, or an uh, an MB. The they they really want to practice what they're trained in, which is medicine and not have to worry about all the employment and the all the bureaucracy of running a small business.
0: Mm -hmm. But, you know, is the model is the is the solution to that? And I'm sure it gets discussed a lot when you gather at conventions and such. Is the solution at least being advanced by some, Dr. May, that, well, why don't we just put us all on the payroll and we'll just draw a salary Mm -hmm. and that'll be that?
2: Yeah, see, this is—I think this is a bit of a smokescreen, uh, Sterling. Actually, uh, as a uh, as a family doctor in both British Columbia and the UK, you can tell from my funny accent. Mm-hmm. I've worked in—I've worked in both systems. So I've worked as a as a salaried physician and I've worked as a fever service physician. I actually believe that um, uh, family physicians are are dedicated individuals and they can give good quality care. No matter what the the pay structure is, the crux of the matter is that the pay needs to be adequate to do the job. So it's not that fee-for-service is bad or salary is good. Um, It's just that the remuneration needs to be adequate for the job.
0: And so this is the fee-for-service negotiation process, that is, uh, process rather, that is ongoing. And according to Minister Dix, uh, some kind of announcement will be made in the fall. Are you confident that, such, uh, that some kind of agreement may be reached before Christmas?
2: Well, the BC College of Family Physicians is actually not party to those negotiations, so I can talk as an outsider. Okay. Um, i um i uh, i simply don't know actually uh the i think it there has been uh the, the best thing about this funding announcement is that people are talking about the uh beyond crisis in family medicine again and this is uh put people's focus so that you and i are talking about this again and um making sure that we actually do something for the long-term health of British Columbians.
0: but dr may as you said it's pretty much a band-aid on a big wound uh we're talking almost a covid-like response with a short-term interim government financing to get you from point a to b over a few short months that's all the deal really is isn't it
2: that's correct yes Uh, and uh there needs to be a uh, so this is the short term stabilization that we talked we talked about
0: before. Yeah, uh,
2: there needs to be a medium term uh, solution whereby it, uh, family doctors can go to work and actually make a reasonable living compared to other um, areas where family doctors are being lured away from that longitudinal relationship based care. And then in the long term, we need to have a fundamental discussion about what. Uh, primary care needs to look like for british Columbians for the next 10 years
0: interesting and dr may you mentioned the national health and you've worked in both the british and the canadian system so you have an understanding of how things get done particularly behind the scenes what is your uh, comfort level with some kind of uh, solution that is workable for all parties ever to be reached
2: well i think that really uh certainly is up to political will um as you know, we have a uh, taxpayer-funded healthcare system, and so therefore, ultimately, we are answerable to the taxpayers, and they are represented by the government. So it's uh, the government holds the cards on that one, and uh, the BC College of Family Physicians is would be happy and willing to have a long-term discussion about uh, what uh, future healthcare looks like. But I think ultimately this has to be about the patients. This has to be about patient access to primary care. And it's that relationship to the longitudinal care offered by a family physician that actually improves health of people in all well-developed healthcare systems across the world and also offers the most economic healthcare as well. So it's good for health and it's good for the finances of the government.
0: Interesting stuff. Dr. May, thanks ever so much for doing this with us this morning. It's great to have you back on the program, and we'll bug you again as the the, the situation warrants, because clearly this is far from resolved. Thanks again, sir. You're very welcome, Sterling. Nice to talk to you again. Constitutional Rights Group has launched a legal challenge of that federal requirement that travelers to Canada use the ArriveCan app. The action was filed in federal court by the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms on behalf of 11 Canadians including some allegedly fined up to 8500 bucks. Joining us from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms is lawyer Eva Chipiak. Eva, good morning. Welcome.
3: Thank you. Good morning to you too.
0: Well, it's good to have you with us, Eva. By the way, is joining us from Calgary. Where, in which federal court has this action been filed, or is it going to be filed, Eva?
3: No, it has been filed. been okay. Filed early Wednesday morning, um, and it's filed in federal court uh, through the Toronto office. But it is a federal office, so. Uh, you know, it's not a provincial application. It's a national application to the Federal Court of Canada.
0: OK, so now what is the process once once a, a, an action is filed? Uh, you're the plaintiff, the Justice Centre for Constitutional Freedoms. I would assume the government of Canada would be the defence. And what have they had to say about this?
3: Right. So um, just correct you a little bit. Um, It's filed on behalf of four applicants. So it's not the Justice Centre that is the applicant. So the four, um, excuse me, 11 people in Canada, as you mentioned earlier, are the applicants. And uh, we've named the Attorney General of Canada as the respondent. Um, Those are the people that Um, in Canada that respond. So rather than the Minister of Public Health or the Minister of Transportation, for example... Uh, the Attorney General of Canada are basically the lawyers for, and that's who we've been serving, and that's what the Government of Canada has asked, to, asked us to do in these cases.
0: Eva, let's dive into the nuts and bolts of your case if we can. And, and the government hasn't responded, I gather, yet. Uh, and because it's so, you just filed it on Wednesday, but you have obviously a case built. You wouldn't, no. appro- you, you wouldn't yeah. approach the federal government uh, with this kind of case without having done extensive homework. So, diving into the nuts and bolts of it all, what is what's what it because the arrive can app was brought in as a public health measure by which our vaccination proof etc would be easily available to uh, for for travel purposes and so on uh, and so what what is the nature of the complaint
3: right so um you got it it is, it was brought forward on public health measures is how we understand it and what's interesting about Um, How the law has been written is that basically every uh, the default is, is you have to use this application, whether or not you're vaccinated or not. Um, So uh, we have clients that are listed in this application that, you know, complied, got vaccinated, have proof of it. And uh, just, you know, didn't want to download this application due to privacy and other concerns, show it at the border, uh, show, want to show their status at the border, and the border agents give them a fine. Right. Uh, because they're, they're taking it so strictly. So um, whether or not it's for the public health measures at, at this point is questionable.
0: Well, a lot is a lot of criticism, and it's 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 worked its way into the conservative leadership race. We're seeing candidates uh, have a, a say about arrivecan. Nothing very good, by the way, given that they're the opposition, they wouldn't exactly be fans of it to begin with. But nonetheless, they're talking about it basically as a surveillance tool, having very little to do with public health and a whole lot to do with um, sort of control by center of the central government. Uh, is that does that political opinion factor into your legal case at all?
3: Uh, That political opinion doesn't really, at this point, it's good to hear opposition, that is uh, for sure, but we are hearing opposition from so many people, so many poor, law-abiding citizens are being, you know, just overburdened and fined, you know, close to $10,000, which is a pretty hefty fine for anyone. Or just trying to come back into their country. We hear opposition from uh, municipalities that are close to the border, yes. uh, businesses close to the border. And CBSA agents sound like uh, the customs agents are really having a hard time. So there's a lot of people that the frustration is really brewing. And it seems that the federal government thinks everything is peachy keen yet with this um their program
0: it is, and when you talk to the union representing those who actually have to work face to face with people carrying the arrive can apps or not the 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 workers uh, the border people etc will will be very quick to tell you that it's not anywhere near as smooth as the government would have you believe uh, and in fact it's it's rife with uh, with problems and it does slow down the entire re-entry process for Canadians and entry process for our visitors and you're quite right. Border communities from coast to coast, Eva, are quite upset at the arrive can app and are actually pointing at it or to it as an impediment to their recovery from COVID uh, the last couple of years and being able to re- recover successfully. It's impeding traffic to their businesses.
3: Hmm. Yeah. We. You know. I was shocked to hear the stories that we had so many like great citizens, Canadians write to the Justice Centre about their stories with the Arrive Can app. One example that um, we have is a fellow tried to cross the border into the United States, didn't actually make it into the United States and came back. And in that case, he he was, it wasn't the Arrive Can app, but he was ordered to quarantine for 14 days. So it's just, it's just all these odd things. Another one had a glitch with their syst- with the arrive cam system. Even though they complied and did everything they could, it wasn't their fault that the system glitched. And mm-hmm. yeah, fines are coming. Um, quarantine measures are they're being told to quarantine. And it's, you know, it's turned into a bit of an absurdity with
0: it. Well, and speaking of absurdity, for example, if you're ordered into quarantine by virtue of not having used the uh, Arrive Can app, or perhaps you did use it as some of your, uh, as you've mentioned, some people who've written to you said, yeah, we, we did everything we were supposed to do, but there was a glitch. And because of the glitch, I was ordered into quarantine. So if you're ordered, you're the lawyer in this conversation. If if the government orders you into quarantine at the border for whatever, and you say, Forget about it. I'm home. I'm going home. See ya. What happens then?
3: Well, you know, it, there's been so many cases of that. And it, it, the other option is they're getting ticketed. And it seems like in some cases, even when they're ordered to quarantine, uh, they're still getting ticketed for not complying because of the Arrive Can app. Mm. So they're, you know, um, just these strange tickets are being given out. They're, they're very... Uh, uncertain as to the exact nature of them so this is part of the reason that we we are uh, bringing this challenge we've listed all of the fines and the reasons for the fines that were given and again all of this will be challenged in this application because it's not uh, really that clear
0: right so now you've uh, again this is really fresh news eva because you've just filed this in federal court in toronto a couple of days ago what's the process like Uh, walk us through because the defense the government of canada has yet to even acknowledge the fact that it's been filed so how long in terms of before we actually get a court date and you get a hearing and a chance to stand up in front of a judge and, and present your case. Uh,
3: the one thing with law and justice, it, it is a bit of a slow uh, molasses process. Usually um, we don't expect this one will be expedited very much, but possibly because, you know, these are clearly issues of national importance Um How it works, this is what's called a judicial review. So it's not like a typical statement of claim you would see where somebody's suing you, you're getting sued or you're suing somebody for monetary damages. A judicial review is uh, a lawsuit that is questioning and challenging the law. Okay. Period. And so um, it's up to the applicant to show that the law is incorrect, basically. And so the next step for us is to file affidavits on behalf of our applicants. And in this federal court challenge, we could bring up to five expert reports to um, help justify and defend the position of the applicants. After that, the respondents, Canada, has the opportunity to do the same. So they'll file affidavit evidence from some of, you know, their top bureaucrats and administrators. And they also have an opportunity to file five expert reports. Uh, You know, that'll be a few months. Uh, The next step will be cross examinations They have an opportunity to test our evidence under oath. Um, The same will happen with um, us cross-examining their evidence. And then if there's a written uh, filing of um, an argument, and then we'll be in court. You know, um, if we have our fingers crossed and it's really moves fast, possibly in a year, but... You know, we haven't heard yet back from the court, likely to. There might be a couple other applications and then they'll get consolidated. That's happened in a couple other cases mm-hmm. that are similar in nature with the quarantine hotels. The Justice Centre brought a... Constitutional challenge as well as the travel vaccine mandate challenge, and that was consolidated with some
0: other folks. And a final question to you, and we're grateful for your time on the weekend, too, by the way. Uh, is it possible at the end of all of this judicial review and the trial and all the rest of it that the, the judge? May set aside the arrive can app based on the evidence presented by your group and your witnesses. The decision could could it be as simple as well? It's uh, it, it, it's it's not it's no longer valid. Could that be the outcome eventually?
3: That is correct. So what's um, really incredible about a charter constitutional challenge is you need one Canadian to stand up for the rights of all Canadians. So in a charter challenge, we're saying that they're affecting basic rights that. Uh, that are guaranteed under the charter, and in this case, our bigger, best arguments are going to be under privacy and mobility uh, that's where we're going to go very likely uh, and I'm sure you could you can imagine that from yourself, sure so, is affected the most. so yes, if we're successful and the court finds that the government basically overstepped its power in what it did and didn't doesn't have the justification for it then yes the famous saying scrap the app would be what the court could come out with
0: interesting stuff eva this is as you say likely to take a while of course the feds are are always in election mode and this is an incredibly (laughs) unpopular item they don't want to hear about it they don't want to deal with it they just like it so as this proceeds uh, i'd like to be able to call upon you and uh, have you update us here on the coast as to what exactly is going on in the courtroom are you good with that
3: Anytime. Feel
0: free. Excellent. Well, thanks very much for this this morning. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live six to nine weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week.